I want you to use your imagination with me for a few moments. And I, I want everybody to do this. Picture that there is a face-to-face meeting between you and God. It's just the two of you. Whatever you need to do to imagine it, that there you are sitting down across from God. Do that right now. Try to get that into your mind. It's just you and God there. And God looks to you and says, ask me for anything and it's yours. This story is told in 1 Kings where God actually comes to a man. His name is Solomon. And says to Solomon, it's just the two of them, says to him directly, ask what I should give you. At the time, Solomon was the king of Israel. He had just started out really being the king. He had a job that was massively important for God's people. He had enormous responsibility, uh, unimaginable pressure on his shoulders. And at night, in a dream, God appears to him and says, in effect, you tell me what you want, anything at all, and I'll give it to you. What would you ask for if that happened to you? Put yourself in his position. Maybe you'd say, God, give me the influence to control all of the neighboring kingdoms. Make it so I have reputation that leads to respect from everybody who I meet. Uh, You know what, God? I want you to look after me every single day of my life so that every step I take, I can be assured that you'll be right there with me. Protect me and the people that I love. Make it so that my children thrive uh, in a challenging world. Uh, make it so that, uh, that everything I work at with my whole heart succeeds. Uh, give me all the money anyone could ever want. <laughs> Have some of you thought of that already? In the first service, there was a young girl who leaned over and I could hear her say to her father, a million dollars. <laughs> Solomon responds in this way. This is verse 9 in 1 Kings 3. Give your servant an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. God says, what do you want? And Solomon says, wisdom. That's what I want. If I could have anything at all from God, give me a mind that knows the difference between good and evil so I can govern your people, so that I can use everything you've given me for the reasons that you had in mind when you gave them. Give me wisdom to be the person that you want me to be. If it surprises you that he could have asked for all those other things and decided to ask instead for wisdom, what you would discover if you read the book of Proverbs, much of which was written by Solomon, is that as it turns out, all of those other good things come from wisdom. That is, when a person acquires this gift, which is our theme today, they can then count on the fact that where they walk, God will be with them. That when they lie down and rest, their sleep will be sweet. They can count on security and safety from God. That the power to influence others and move them in the right direction, the ability to have a good name before God and others, the promise that your own children will thrive, to be rid of anxiety and fear forever, to have that which is better than silver and gold and all of the jewels you could ever imagine. That, it says in the scriptures, is what comes from wisdom. 
It's just that good. And if that is true, then it means for every one of us here, no matter how young or old, the most important question that we could ask this morning is this, where can I find wisdom? If it is in fact that good, where can it be found? James, who has been our teacher in the last month and a half, happens to focus an awful lot of attention in his letter on the theme of wisdom because... He knew the story of Solomon. He knew how important it is to move through life with wisdom. And so he guided the attention of his readers toward the question which is ours this morning. In chapter 3, verse 13, he raises the question like this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Now, when James wrote the letter that he wrote, it was dispersed to communities who, like our community, would gather together on the Lord's Day for instruction and for worship to grow as God's people. And when he asked this question of them, we can see that James knew that in every gathering of people like this one, there will be some who are wise, and there will be some who lack wisdom. And because he asks who is who, we can infer that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And so James doesn't just raise the question, who has wisdom? He wants us to think of what it looks like to have wisdom. He doesn't just raise that question. He offers a first bit of guidance toward what wisdom looks like when he continues. Look at these words. Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. He follows his question with an immediate picture of what happens when wisdom is inside of someone and gives birth to the kind of things which wisdom always gives birth to. He names two characteristics which, if your eyes are open, you'll be able to see in the people around you. First is there, a good life. The person who is wise expresses her wisdom by a life which is simply put, a good life. If someone lives in a manner that is exemplary, that is right, that is just and fair and equitable, you can be sure that beneath their living is wisdom. Second, to fill that out, James adds works done with gentleness. Works are those actions which you do on purpose. The kind of output that follows a decision in a person's mind to go this way rather than that way. The person who works at benevolence, for instance, or the woman who is selfless and intentionally does good things for others. Have you ever seen someone doing those kinds of things? If the answer for you is, yes, I have, then James would say, now you're on to the path of where wisdom can be found. Gentleness is the term he uses to modify works. It's surprising for James's readers, because in Greek, it's more like meekness. And in every Greek moral teacher, meekness always appeared as a vice rather than a virtue. The ancient Greeks taught anyone who was meek, who was gentle, who was not combative and aggressive, that was someone who is a person who lacks courage and will never amount to much in the world. James here reveals one of the many ways that Jesus turns things upside down. Do you know this about Jesus? The world will teach you it's more blessed to receive, and Jesus says, no, no, it's better to give. The world will tell you that you become authoritative by dominating the people around you. Jesus says, no, no, you become great by serving others. Uh, do some of you know these words of Jesus? Yeah, here Jesus says, 
True strength and courage is in meekness. The meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. James, following the teaching of his brother, says, if you want to know what wisdom looks like, look around you, and when you see someone who does good things for other people in an unobtrusive and gentle manner, whose life is good for the people around her, now you are seeing where wisdom is. Pause here for a moment, and we've got a first critical lesson about the quality of wisdom. And it is this. Wisdom is not, first of all, what you know. It's what you do. It's not, first, the information which you have which other people don't have. It's the way that you choose to live. That's what wisdom actually is. Here, James's readers would have been surprised because they would have learned from their moral teachers that the wisest person was the one who had the most information. And don't you know that everybody around us now has all the information they could ever want right in their hands? But that's not what wisdom is, James says. First and foremost, wisdom is exhibited in a life which is good. In a life which gently and patiently does good for people who are around you. Now that's what it looks like when you see true wisdom. James continues because every single community of faith has people in it who think they are wise but are not to share what it looks like when you have false wisdom. Look at verse 14. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. In almost every single church mentioned in the New Testament, it appears that a constant theme is the danger of teachers who are false, who have strong and divisive opinions, and they pose as though they're wise, but in fact, if anyone with open eyes focuses on the outcome of what they teach, you can discover that this wisdom of theirs is not true wisdom. Instead, it's false wisdom. And there are two characteristics here, which if you highlight them, will reveal what it looks like when the wisdom in question is not genuine. The first is bitter envy. In Greek, it's literally harsh zeal or divisive rivalry. Think of the religious voice that becomes intensely interested in some kind of fringe idea within Christian faith broadly, lifts it with such enthusiasm that it becomes attractive to people who need something to belong to by defining themselves against others who don't see it in exactly the same way. And then you have in your mind a picture of exactly what James means here when he describes a sign of false wisdom as bitter envy. This is the person who builds a contingency among people who are interested in knowing about God who are with him defining themselves as against others. He wants to win. And if you look carefully at him, you'll see that instead of really standing for the truth, he's mainly someone who's bitter, rigid, and filled with personal pride. These are telltale signs that his wisdom is not real wisdom. It's false to the truth. And then go on to selfish ambition. This is the second sign. This is the person whose goal is to build something for himself, not something which is good for others and the world. He wants to gather people together who he can lead to emotionally or physically withdraw from the church and he insists that the larger body has moved away from the truth so that those who are faithful have to adhere, listen now, to him, not to the truth. And, and if your eyes are clear, then you'll see that this is somebody whose real commitment is to 
himself. The word which is translated selfish ambition here in James was used first by Aristotle and it refers to the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. Does that sound like an old term or a brand new one to you? The truth about every community of people who, like we are, are together trying to follow after God is that in everyone there will be on the one hand signs of what true wisdom looks like and then right beside it will be other signs of what it looks like when a person tries to assert herself or himself as being wise but rather is guiding people away from, rather toward the path of true wisdom. James adds some more so that we can be on the lookout for false wisdom in verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and devilish. Here is first a hint that goes back to the story of Solomon. Do you see where true wisdom comes from? It comes from above. But this kind of wisdom, three adjectives used here, is earthly. That means it doesn't come from above. It comes from down here. And I promise you that there is no shortage of false wisdom available for all of us that comes from down here. Do you know that too? You want an opinion to prove anything at all, you can find it, I guarantee you. But this wisdom that comes from the earth is secondly called unspiritual. You see that? In Greek, the word means, this is interesting, it's soulish. And, and really, it's a way for James to say, such wisdom is about the emotions and feelings of the person who asserts himself toward his own ends. It's about the person's ego. That's what it's really about. And he adds this third adjective, which is very harsh. It is devilish. That's James' way of saying, not only does it not come from God, and is it about the person's feelings here, but it is in, fa is in fact demonic. And for James, this means it reveals the power of evil at work, which always tries to undo everything which is good, and if that is what evil is about, one of its greatest assets is to do whatever it can within its power to divide up the people of God who, all together, when they see themselves as allies, are a force which is so good, it frightens the devil to death. So here we're meant now to look at each other and recognize that the more we're torn apart, by the kind of divisiveness and faction that anyone who wants to can, can uh, use like a fuel for a fire to divide us apart, the, the less that we're divided up like that and the more that we all together stick with each other around the main things which matter. The more we do that, the more we will be God's instrument for good in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever we find ourselves, and especially critical for us as a church, the more powerfully Renaissance Church can do the good work that God had in mind when he created this community in the world which God loves. Look, in verse 16, James says very plainly what will happen as we're, as we're misguided toward false wisdom. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, those two markers of false wisdom, Look at what happens. There will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. And here, James is not just being hyperbolic. He actually means to tell us the truth that it is a lack of wisdom that results in disorder. And disorder means that human beings, men and women, who are made for cooperation, 
become combative with each other and tear each other apart so that we can't trust our hearts to the people around us. And that is the opposite of what God wants. Wickedness of every kind means just that. Here, I believe James would say, if you're wondering why people do so many awful things to each other in the world that you inhabit, listen, it's because there's so little true wisdom. Now, if that's the case, then it stands to reason that the opposite is also true, which means where there is genuine wisdom, where men and women are guided one step at a time into how to behave by the kind of wisdom which does come from above, so that they become people whose good lives demonstrate true wisdom by acts of goodness for others. Where that happens, then you have order and goodness of every kind. And by the way, that is exactly what you were made for, to inhabit a world where there is order and goodness of every kind. Listen now, every one of you, and, and you can't be too young for this, and you cannot be too old for this either. Every one of you individually, and all of us together, were made to be the receivers of God's good wisdom so that our lives are good and so that our lives result in good works that are done gently in the world and there is no force more potent than men and women being guided by God in Christ doing good in his name. So where can I find wisdom? If James tells me this is what true wisdom looks like and this is what it looks like when you have the opposite, where can I find the genuine article really? How do I get it? One of the most magnificent things about James as an author is that at times he says in the most simple and straightforward ways the exact answer to the questions that are most pressing for us. Uh, look at how James addresses this question in the very beginning of his letter. In verse 5 of chapter 1, look at what James writes. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. There is, first of all, the statement of a condition. If any of you is lacking wisdom, for whom is that true? Okay, what then? Ask God. As simply as Solomon did? Like just say, God, give me wisdom? Yes. As simply as Solomon did, James says, ask God if you do not have wisdom. Ask him, why should I ask him? Why? Well, right here, look, because God gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. Why would God do that? Well, James doesn't say it here. Further down, he describes God as the father of lights from whom every good and perfect gift comes. Why would God give you wisdom if you ask? Why? Because God loves you like a father who is absolutely perfect in every way you can possibly imagine. If you had the best father that anyone could ever have, he's nothing compared to the grace and benevolence and goodness and care of your heavenly father, James would say. And that's why God is ready to give you wisdom if only you will ask. If you lack wisdom, ask God. If you let it come into your mind for a moment, where do I need wisdom and I do not have it? And maybe someone's thinking, I have to decide what to do about this job. Or I have to know what to do with my child here. It's too confusing for me. I have to figure out which classes to focus on in this next semester. 
I have to figure out how to manage this conflict here. Whatever it is, let it come into your mind. And listen, James believes emphatically from his own experience that God cares about exactly what you are concerned with and wants to give you exactly what you need to know how to move forward. And after promising that if you ask, God will give it to you, then in verse 6, James goes on to offer one condition. And there is a condition, by the way, to receiving this promise of God. And it's in verse 6. But ask in faith, James says. Stop there. Ask in faith, he says. Faith in Greek means trust. It does not mean pretend you believe something which you don't believe yet. That's not what it means. It's more than that. It's trust. It's the disposition which a child has toward his mother because his mother has always been trustworthy. That's what it means to ask in faith. Ask trusting Never doubting, he says, never doubting that this one that you are asking for wisdom from is trustworthy. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Here, James evokes a very vivid picture from nature to describe the person who on the one hand trusts God enough to ask, but then on the other hand doesn't trust God enough to believe the response which she receives. The wave which is tossed this way and that is the most drastic picture of a person who is completely at the mercy of her circumstances in terms of well-being. Does anybody know from experience what it's like to be that person? To be doing well when everything around you is going well, but to be doing poorly when everything around you is not going your way. A a wave which is tossed by the wind is a person whose well-being is 100% contingent upon his circumstances, who goes through life in whichever direction the winds happen to be blowing. But a person of faith who asks God for wisdom and can count on receiving what he asks for is someone who is not determined by what's happening out there, but rather is directed by what's going on inside. And listen now, this is a promise for everyone who trusts Jesus. That when you open your heart to Christ, he dwells inside your heart by faith. And that means what you need for what's next is in there because God has decided to put it there. That is his own presence. Look at what James goes on to add in verse 7. And you must pay careful attention here. For the doubter being double-minded and unstable in every way must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. The doubter who is unstable is double-minded In Greek, two-souled, the person who has one soul that says, I trust God enough to ask, but then the person on the other hand who has another soul that says, don't trust what God tells you. And the reason to bear this in mind carefully is it's easy to misunderstand here James as if what he's saying is if you ask God and doubt, then he won't give you wisdom. But that is not what James says here. Note very carefully what he actually does say about the doubter. Look, the doubter must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. That is not the same as saying God won't give anything to the doubter. It is precisely to say that if you ask and doubt, you can't receive what God gives to everyone who asks. Think of it like this. You're lost 
And so you go and ask someone for directions. That person knows exactly how to get to the place where you need to get to. And then they tell you, you need to go straight and turn right. And you say, thank you. And then you walk away, you get in the car, you drive off and turn left instead. Are you going to get where you need to be? No, and it's not because they didn't give you guidance. It's that you didn't receive anything from what they gave. And listen now. There are plenty of things about God and what he wants for you that are right now in this moment beyond you to grasp. Is that true? But there are also plenty of things that are within your grasp even now this morning that God has made plain enough to you that you can be a person of wisdom, listen now, by receiving and moving in the direction that God has told you to to move. Uh, That it is your calling to be a person of generosity with everything that God has trusted you with. James goes on an awful lot about that. Read the whole book and watch the warnings that he gives to people who are rich. As we are rich here in the, world, uh, in the world's view, we are mightily rich. Wisdom says, be generous with what God has entrusted you with. Do you know that? If you didn't know that, now I've told you, you're on the hook. Whether you receive that wisdom or not depends on which direction you go. Will you trust God and be a person of generosity or not? Uh, Don't run off at your mouth all the time. When you're in an argument and you want to say something mean back, keep quiet. Do you all know that that's what God wants for you and for me? Now it's up to you whether you receive that wisdom or not. To be quiet when it's time to be quiet. Uh, James offers this guidance for us because what he wants for you to have and for me to have is wisdom because when we embrace wisdom, then as the life uh, and then the wisdom of Solomon shows, we have every good thing. What does it look like if we can ask and then trust God? What does genuine wisdom look like? We come back to chapter 3 and verse 17. James spells it out with a very, very beautiful list of the virtue of wisdom. Look at 17. But the wisdom from above. That is the wisdom which God is ready to give each and every one of us here this morning, every one of us, is first of all, pure. Now that word pure is the chief characteristic of the wisdom which God gives. And what it means directly is innocent and morally blameless. That's what purity means. If you look in the wisdom of the old ways, through the prophets, through the sages, through the, the, the word of God that is given and passed down through the Hebrew scriptures, which would have been the Bible for James, pure meant righteous as opposed to crooked. God is pure, innocent as opposed to guilty, honest and true as opposed to deceptive and false. The wisdom which God gives to anyone who asks is first of all pure, and pure wisdom enables you and enables me to live in a way that matches with what James said earlier. And then James goes on, and you can see it right there, to offer a list of seven brilliant and clear characterizations of what true wisdom looks like. Let's take them one at a time, peaceable. That's the first one. I think of somebody who, when you spend an hour with them, you're absolutely sure that at the end of the hour, even though you're going to talk about really important things that, in life, like you're going to talk politics with them, you're going to talk religion with them, you're going to talk about how to raise your children, you're going to talk about what kind of things they've learned over the years, you know that at the end of that hour, you're more likely to be smiling and laughing together than you are to be angry with each other on the opposite side of the room. That's what peaceable means. 
It means someone who is confident in enough in what she knows and her convictions that she doesn't always need to be right. She doesn't need to force you to look at things like she looks at them. She's pleasant and peaceable. That's the first. Very similar to that is a second, gentle. The word literally means non-combative, unlikely to quarrel, courteous. Even when provoked, the, the genuinely wise person is not going to be aggressive back. He's considerate. Don't you see how desperately we need this kind of character in our own public discourse? Or standing in the line at the supermarket or driving in traffic? We need people who are gentle in this way. That, listen now, that's wisdom. Wisdom, again, it's not just first knowing something, it's being a person who's gentle. Look at the third, it carries that forward. Someone who's willing to yield. Uh, this is not a pushover or someone who doesn't hold his convictions with, with real confidence. No, it's not that at all. It's someone, on the other hand, who gladly submits to the true teaching and listens carefully to other people instead of interrupting them and attacking them and trying over and over again to get his a point across, but rather he's willing to know that I'm easily enough persuaded and trusting enough in the truth that maybe I don't know everything already, that I am teachable. That's the third quality that James names in true wisdom. This correlates with a fourth, which I think is beautiful, full of mercy. Mercy is clemency. In legal terms, it is the decision not to punish someone in the way that their actions have warranted. It means giving someone another chance. It means when someone has got the wrong idea and does the wrong thing, instead of hanging it over their head, you are completely ready to say, you know what, let's leave it in the past and start again. It's filling in the gap with trust rather than suspicion. It's inclined toward forgiveness and grace. James here surely was thinking of his brother Jesus when he added this uh, as a hallmark of true wisdom. The person who is merciful is wise in her mercy. Those four always result in this fifth, which can be seen with any eyes that are open to see it, full of good fruits. I think it's one of the novelties of moral exhortation in the first century that good fruit is used to depict what it looks like when someone is kind and gracious to the people around them. I wonder, does anyone in here really despise fruit? No? You like fruit? You're good with fruit? Okay, if you don't like fruit, turn it into vegetables if vegetables are your thing. But whatever is your thing, here James wants you to understand that wisdom will lead to a person who is abundant in output, which is nourishing and enjoyable and pleasant. Uh, and, and, and productive for the people who are within his sphere of influence. Giving food to the hungry, shelter to the needy, company for the lonely, becoming a father for those who are fatherless, and welcoming the lonely widow into your home. Wisdom produces an abundance of good fruit like this. And look at the sixth one, without a trace of partiality. That means true wisdom never says, and I'm only going to do good for these people, but not them. It's impartial in its kindness. It's benevolent across all the boundaries and the borders that we are inclined to make because we are people who want to divide up and judge people who aren't exactly like us. True wisdom has no partisanship. It's simple, harmonious, sees that the moment I've divided that person into them and this person into us, 
I have to wait until God comes and takes away the boundary and says, hey, listen, before me, you're all, all of you are us. And then I'm ready without any more partiality to also see all, and this is the last in the list, all hypocrisy go away so that my wisdom reveals itself in the fact that there isn't a trace of hypocrisy in me, that pure and absolute sincerity marks my opinions and my actions, that you're not pretending or play-acting in order to influence the people around you, but instead you are the same person here as you are there, that you are who you are, and as such you become a binding force within the Christian community who brings people together so that all as one we can be the instrument that God uses to bring his kingdom forward. And that is exactly what God wants of us all together. And when we are open to true wisdom, this is what we all can expect. James wraps up his meditation on true wisdom with a proverb that closes uh, his teaching off with a promise. And it's in verse 18. Uh, Look at it. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Now, making peace was the chief expression of wisdom that mattered in his time. For us, maybe it is peace. Maybe it's meant of the other ways that, that wisdom is meant to manifest itself. But the promise here tells us that if you are a person who is sowing peace, again, an agricultural metaphor. Uh, think of a farmer If you're someone who sees a field there and recognizes in it the potential for good things to grow and you get to work by removing from the soil those things which need to be taken out, the stones and the weeds which would inhibit good growth. And then if you go ahead and you take time to plant seeds, the kind of seeds that wisdom would say, plant these kinds of seeds. If that is what you do, then the promise is there will be a day when in peace there will be a harvest and it will be a harvest of righteousness. Uh, Listen now, I want you to grasp this in your mind. Everyone try this. Ask, what is one seed which if I'm being guided by wisdom, I myself would begin to plant? Maybe it's a seed of kindness for the students that I'm going to be spending time with over the summer and the activities I'm involved in. Or maybe it's uh, an open ear for my coworker who's really struggling and I'm going to listen and while they share, I'm going to pray. That is a seed of wisdom to do something like that. Maybe, listen, maybe it says, maybe I'm not going to hide this addiction that's got me going away from God anymore and I'm going to confess it to somebody. I'm going to say, I am so tangled up in this sin, I need help. Maybe that's how you're going to move forward in purity. Whatever it is, the promise here for us is if you'll sow, then there will be a harvest of righteousness. Now here, I'm going to give you a picture of what that looks like with an assignment. A harvest of righteousness means the kind of behaviors which are pleasing to God. And that is the promise where it happens if you are wise. That you will move through life in a way that the way you behave will actually be pleasing to God. How will you know what that looks like? You are going to read the letter of James. Not right now. You're going to do this this evening perhaps. And as you read, say, where can I see the kind of behavior that pleases God? Make a mark there. And that is what a harvest of righteousness looks like. You cannot get far before you're going to find something beautiful. For instance, whenever you face trials of any kind, you're going to consider it nothing but joy because you know that trials produce perseverance, which makes you mature. Check. There's the first thing. 
If you sow wisdom now, the trials that you face in life will not overwhelm you, but you'll see them as joy because they'll make you mature. Does that seem practical for anyone here? Of course, for all of us. Keep going and you will find innumerable signs of what righteousness comes from the path of wisdom. Now, what remains is for all of us to ask God together to give us the wisdom that we need. And so I want to guide us now in a prayer for wisdom. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. God, each of us in our own way needs to hear from you about the path that you're setting out before us. What we ask for this morning, all of us, is for you to give what you promised to give to those who ask in faith, wisdom. Help us see the way to become men and women whose lives show that there is wisdom in our hearts as we become people whose lives are good and abundant in good works for the world you love, for the people who you've given us influence over. Help us, like Solomon, to be single-minded in our search for wisdom, and then help us trust to receive what you give so that as soon as you speak, we can be people who are guided by the vision which you give. God, whatever it is that keeps us from going forward where you mean to call us forward, take it away and give us instead the courage to step forward in faith as men and women of wisdom. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.